Chapter 20 of Luke's Gospel, verse 1. Now it happened on one of those days as he, that is Jesus, taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel that the chief priests and the scribes together with the elders confronted him and spoke to him saying, tell us by what authority are you doing these things or who is he who gave you this authority? So keep in mind if you've been with us in our study through Luke's gospel that Jesus is in the final week of his life before he is crucified on a cross right outside the city walls of Jerusalem. You recall that as we ended the last chapter, that he would go into the magnificent temple. He overturned the money changers' tables, drove out those who sold lambs and doves, as it is Passover. And, and Mark records some uh, specific information that's quite remarkable, that he actually stopped uh, not only the merchants from using the temple for their business and transactions, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So the religious leaders who were overseeing all this, particularly Annas, the high priest, uh, Caiaphas, and some of the others, the family of Annas, who was making a lot of money off the ripping the people off of, of high prices for them to buy an animal for sacrifice, then the exchange of money and all of this, they are angry. The religious leaders are furious with Jesus because he rode into Jerusalem on the back of a, of a donkey. And as he rolled in, the whole city was moved. They're expecting the kingdom of God to be ushered in, chapter 19 tells us. They're yelling out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're waving the palm branches. They are ascribing to him the, the term of Messiah. You are the son of David. You are the king of Israel. And these religious leaders, as Jesus then the next day, that was Palm Sunday, his triumphal entry. Monday, he comes in. He overturns the money changers' tables. He cleanses the temple, he rebukes publicly those religious leaders by saying, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations, is what Mark records, but you have made it a den of thieves. You are ripping the people off. You're a bunch of thieves. This is a den of safety. And so they are furious with Jesus coming to him at this point right now. And they are saying, by what authority do you do these things? And who gave you that authority? So the people here have been listening to Jesus. The religious leaders who saw themselves as the authority of the day, they're beginning to sense they're starting to lose that authority. As we read at the end of chapter 19, you might recall last time, that they were ones that, that he was teaching and they were listening to him. They were uh, very attentive, verse 48 tells us to hear him. In other words, they are hanging on every word that Jesus is saying. He's here in the temple, verse 1, preaching the gospel. They are listening to every word that he has to say. And so now as the religious leaders, they are coming to him. And here are, the, as we read, the chief priests, the scribes together with the elders. The elders would be those of the Sanhedrin council that Jesus in a few days is going to stand before and going to be condemned and he's going to be beaten at that time. You got the chief priests, you got the scribes, uh, you got these religious leaders. Now there's 70 members of the Sanhedrin council, so it doesn't say all of them are there, but the elders are here, the chief priests, the scribes. There's probably a few dozen at least religious leaders. Don't just picture five or six. There's a 
large group that they march over there to the temple. They make this public scene. They are confronting Jesus publicly. And these guys are hoping to jump all over him and to attack his response, whatever answer he gives. Now, this is not the first time that the religious leaders here in Jerusalem have been challenging Jesus' authority, challenging him and who he is. Matter of fact, in John chapter 8, earlier in Jesus' ministry, they were accusing him of, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus had been saying that I come from the Father. Everything I do, I do according to the will of the Father. And of course, we know that Jesus never said anything, didn't do anything apart from the will of the Father and being in perfect harmony with the Father. But they didn't believe his witness, and, and they would boast that our authority comes from Moses. And Jesus would say to them, the Father who has sent me bears witness of me. So throughout this chapter, Jesus is going to be put under the microscope by these religious elite. It's interesting because it is Passover. And you might recall, as you've read through the book of Exodus, when the Passover was instituted there in Exodus chapter 12, it tells us that on the 10th day of Nisan, what they were to do is they were to pick a lamb. They were to select a lamb without spot and blemish. Verse 5 of the chapter tells us. And then keep that lamb inspected until the 14th of Nisan. And then you were to kill the lamb. And you were to take the blood of that lamb. You were to take the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lentils of your homes, which, by the way, would make the form of a cross. And so for those four days, that lamb would be inspected to make sure that it was without spot and blemish. And Jesus now coming in on Passover, this is what's happening with him. He's the perfect lamb of God. He's the Passover lamb that will die for the sins of the world. He is without spot or blemish. He who is without sin. And they are inspecting him, if you would, until he goes to that cross later in the week. So here they're questioning his authority. In this chapter, not only are they going to question his authority, but as we continue through, they're going to question his integrity And then they're going to question his theology. And we're going to see that he's going to pass with flying colors. He is the one, the the precious lamb of God that is without spot or blemish. And he's going to expose their flaws and their hypocrisy. So they come to him. I imagine their fingers are pointing, snarl on their faces, being all loud, making this scene before this this huge crowd that I believe is probably here, hearing uh, Jesus teach, perhaps on the southern steps of the temple, but somewhere in the temple proper. And, And they're saying, who gave you this authority? What authority do you do these things? And Jesus responds to them as we read now in verse 3. But he answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And so you want to know by what authority I do and say, which is he has already told them, I do nothing apart from my father. And I'm going to ask you guys now a question and you answer me. Now in the Greek, when he says you answer me, he's saying you tell me. The implication is 
you guys see yourselves as the religious authority in the land. Again, these religious leaders feel like they're beginning to lose that authority because uh, the people are, are there listening to Jesus. He's there preaching the gospel in the temple during this week of Passover. That's what the religious leaders should have been doing instead of ripping the people off. They feel like they're losing their authority, that the, the people are beginning to really rally around Jesus and all of this. So here they come trying to back Jesus up into a corner. By what authority do you do these things? Jesus says, you tell me this. You believe you're the religious authority of the land, you tell me. Now keep in mind, as you probably know, that they're not coming to ask him because they want an answer, a true answer. They're not being sincere, are they? They are angry. They're trying to be cynical. They are trying to find a reason to trap him, to accuse him, to be able to hand him over to the Roman authorities, to have a reason to arrest him, to have him get all mixed up in his words to where the people will turn on him. We're going to see that continue through this chapter. They're inspecting him. They're coming challenging him. They're coming with snarls on their faces and that kind of attitude. And we need to remember this, that people will come to you and to me. And they will come asking us questions or challenging us as Christians. And they're not desiring to get an answer sincerely. Sometimes people do. That's great when that happens. But you know how that works. Maybe it's somebody at work or a family member or a neighbor or, or whoever it might be that's linked to you in your life. They, they come and they're kind of challenging you. They're trying to trick you. They're saying, by what authority do you have to tell me that Jesus is the only salvation uh, that there is? To tell me that we're saved by faith alone? Who are you to, to tell me that this is sin? And what we can do is we can say, my authority comes from the word of God. And, and when people challenge us in that, we can do that. And that's something that Jesus oftentimes would do as they would come to him. You've seen it in Luke's gospel. We're going to continue to see it even in our text today. That as they came and challenged him, asked him questions, he would say, it is written. It is written. Or don't you know? Um, have you not read? And he would quote the word of God. And I think that's a very good model for you and for me. Because sometimes, oftentimes, when they know that you are a Christian, that they will come and they begin to ask you questions. Not to get an answer, but to try to trap you and to argue with you and tell you what they think. And what we are to do is we are to quote the scriptures. We are to give the truth in love. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. You know what? Hey, coworker, family member, whoever you are, a friend, I am giving you the truth of God's word because God's word is true and God's word is pure. And I'm giving you God's word because I care about you and I want to give you truth. And our authority comes from the word of God. So here, here they are and, and they come to, to Jesus asking him this question about authority. And he says, let me ask you guys something. You tell me the baptism of John. That is John the Baptist. You know, the one out there in the wilderness uh, a few years ago, out there in the Jordan that, uh, that all of Israel came to see. Was his ministry, was his calling from heaven? In other words, was it God ordained or did it come from men? 
Was he just some guy out there in camel skin and, uh, and all of this in the wilderness doing his own thing? And that's what Jesus is asking them here. And in verse 5, it tells us that they reasoned among themselves. In other words, they excused themselves. You've you got to picture it. You know, the people are, are wanting to hear what Jesus is going to say. By what authority? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus asked them this question about John the Baptist. So they're hanging on every word that he's saying. And here's the religious leaders. They kind of, I imagine the look on their face. Well, we've got to excuse ourselves. And they have this holy huddle. And, and they're over here and they're discussing it and all this. And what a sight it must have been to, to see all that. And then, you know, in that holy huddle, huddle, they're saying, well, if we say from heaven, if we say that John the Baptist, his ministry was from God and God ordained, then the people are going to be wondering, why didn't we believe him? The people will say, why didn't you listen to the Baptists out there in the wilderness? Because John the Baptist was pointing to Jesus and saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes in the name, you know, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And there's going to be one that's going to come after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to unloose. And he's going to come and baptize with fire and with the Holy Spirit. And I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, a fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah, the forerunner to the Messiah. And if we say that um, that he uh, was truly one that came from heaven, they're going to say, then why didn't you guys embrace him? And why aren't you listening to Jesus? But if we say from men, then we're going to be in big trouble. Because the people that are here, uh, they believe John the Baptist and and they'll turn on us. And you see what will happen if we say that John the Baptist was a phony. Then they'll stone us. And we hate it when that happens. <laughs> so here they cop out. Because they knew that Jesus had them in the dilemma. We don't know what they say. And Jesus would respond by saying, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You guys are not being truthful, refusing to tell, give me an answer, so neither will I answer you. Here's the application for you and for me this morning. When we become more concerned about the consequences of our answer than rather than the truth of our answer, we are going to compromise that answer. If we're more concerned about the consequences of the answer that we give over the truth of what we know from the Word of God, then we're going to compromise that answer. And I need to remind you of that because you guys know we live in a culture and a society that will ask us and demand from us what we believe. And when we know the truth, listen, do you realize there's two things that we have to give to others? The world's not going to give it, but you and I do as Christians. And that is God's truth and God's love. And if we fear man over fearing God, you're not going to be able to serve the Lord in the way that you could and when you should. And if you fear man over fearing God, you're thinking, well, I can't give that you know, answer. Somebody at work gives to me, then everybody at work is going to not like me, and they're going to hold me out at arm's length, or my family members are going to come against me, or I'm going to lose my friends. And we know what God's word declares, but we say, you know what, I'm just going to be silent. I'm going to compromise the truth. 
I don't want to tell them about sexual sin. I don't want to tell them about pornography, that it's wrong, or drunkenness, or dishonest dealings. And, and when we fear man over fearing the Lord, Paul would say, you can't be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. We need to fear the Lord and listen. Here's the loving thing to do. And I think we would agree with this. Love people enough to give them the truth of God's word. And if we're more concerned about ourselves and what the consequences are, they're not going to like me. I, you know, we got brothers and sisters on the other side of the world that are being persecuted and killed for being Christians. And we don't have to go through that to that degree here in our nation, but we will be persecuted to some degree. And we're more concerned about losing, you know, a friend or that position at work or whatever, compromising the truth. What we're doing is we're saying that we're more concerned about ourselves and their eternal state. We want to clearly give the gospel. And we want to give it in love. We want to give it in truth. And to give that to others because we have the opportunity to be able to do that. To, to do that in a dark, dark world. I have heard more Christians in the day in which we're living in say, Well, Jesus didn't talk about that subject. Or the writings of the Bible just came from men and their opinions. Or that came from the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah. And that was millenniums ago. So we start to to reason. We start to compromise. and, And we begin to, you know, not use the authority of the Word of God that is given to you and to me to use. Listen, a good verse. If you don't know it, memorize it, write it down, highlight it in your Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that all Scripture, not some Scripture, not only the New Testament, not only the words of Jesus, all Scripture, that means from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, all Scripture is God-breathed. It is inspired by God. That's what that word inspired means. It's God-breathed, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. It's one of the reasons why the Lord has really put on my heart to stop as we're in between the poetic books and the prophetic books before we go into Isaiah to do that series that we need to stand firm and stand fast and hold fast to truth in these difficult days that we are in. And we need to stand firm and hold fast to the truth of God's word to give to others. And yes, you are going to be put down. And there are going to be those who may get angry with you. But there are also those who are going to perhaps open their hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's wonderful when that happens. Talk to a young man just the last service. He, he was waiting for me as I was talking with people. And he said that, that it, was, it was a blessing to be here. And he said, I've heard you on the radio. And he said, I was headed to hell. And you gave the truth. And you guys that are preaching on Grace FM, giving the truth, and I'm listening to this, and I've given my life to Christ. And he's you know, got tears in his eyes and all that. We have the opportunity to give that to others, the truth and the gospel. And that's something the world is going to give to them. Don't compromise it, folks. You stand firm in the word of God. And you stand firm in decisions that you make and how to live a godly life. And we as a church were to stand firm. And the Word of God is going to guide us, to direct us in every area of our lives and what to say to others. And know this, 
Sometimes when people bark at you, you know, and they get angry at you because you give them the word of God, you know why they do that? Because they're being convicted. You know what worries me? Is that person that says, oh, that's fine for you. You know, you believe what you believe. I believe what I believe. We'll all end up in bliss together. And it's like, no, no, you know. I like to get a rise out of somebody at least because I know they're being convicted in some way. Give the truth is what I'm saying. Don't compromise the truth. And don't fear man over fearing God. And that's something that's easy to do. So it's easy for us to point the finger at these guys, but there are lessons for us today. So after this exchange with the religious leaders, he turns now to the people who are listening to all this. He begins teaching to them as he tells the people in verse 9 this parable that a certain uh, uh, man planted a vineyard, leased it to uh, vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. So as he tells this parable, keep in mind the religious leaders are listening. They're going to respond. And they knew exactly what he was talking about, the implications of the story here, because this kind of, of you know, leasing the land in Israel uh, was a common practice. And also they understand the spiritual implications because those religious leaders know that the Old Testament scriptures would speak that the nation of Israel was likened into a vineyard. Psalm chapter 8, verse 8. You have brought a vine out of Egypt, the psalmist writes. You have cast out the, the nations and planted it. We know that Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Hosea and Isaiah chapter 5 speak about how Israel was a vineyard unto the Lord to bring forth fruit, a vineyard unto Jehovah God. And in Isaiah chapter 5 verses 1 through 7, God specifically says that I planted a vineyard, I I chose the the choicest vine, I, I watered it, it had the best soil, I built a wall around it, I did everything so that it could bring forth fruit, but all that happened is it was there was wild fruit, wild grapes that came forth. It didn't bear good fruit. So Isaiah writes about how it will be trampled down, that vineyard, speaking how the Assyrians were going to come and take the house of Israel into captivity. So they would know that he's talking about the nation and specifically about them, the leaders, when he talks about this vineyard. But I want to remind you, isn't it interesting that in a few days from this time that Jesus is going to declare to his disciples that I am the vine, that I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Now in Israel at this time, if you had a lot of acreage, oftentimes you would lease that acreage out to vineyard to vine dressers so they can work the land. Matter of fact, when we finish the Song of Solomon, we're going to see that Solomon's going to make reference to that. It's kind of like in the beginning of our nation and, and um, sharecroppers. And it was different than sharecroppers. What I understood that sharecroppers would give a percentage of the harvest to the landowner. This was a different arrangement in ancient Israel. You would agree in advance of how much the vintage you would give to the owner. Not a percentage, but how much and a quantity amount. So if you were working the land, you were leasing it, and you had a good year, then you made out. If you were working the land and you didn't have a good year, then you were out of luck. You didn't make out so good. So the owner here goes to a far country, as we read, for a long time. And, and it might ring a bell with you. Remember in the last chapter 
the parable of the minus, the nobleman went into a far country to receive a kingdom. But here in this parable, as we read in verse 10, now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. So the owner of the vineyard sends a servant here at vintage time to, to collect what was due to him. The vine dressers, the tenants, they didn't own the vineyard. They didn't make it. They were allowed to work it by a generous owner. But we see that they turned against the owner. And they beat the servant, verse 10, the first one. Now normally, in a normal circumstance, at this time, the owner would respond to the vine dressers, those who were leasing and working the land, not in a favorable way. And you would understand that he would do that. So it really here, as we read this, is an incredible picture that Jesus is giving of a gracious and loving and patient father. Here in the parable, not only does he send one servant, the owner, but he sends a second one. And the same thing happens. They beat him, treat him shamefully, and send him away empty-handed. Then verse 12, we read that a third one is sent, and same results. They wounded him, cast him out. And, and, and as you read it, listen, there is no owner of any vineyard like the owner of this vineyard. God who is so long-suffering. And the people who are listening would think, wow, what kind of owner would do that? Send not only one, but three servants, and they were beaten, they were cast out, and not given what was due to the master. How could he be that patient? How could he be that long-suffering? And it reminds us how God, through the centuries, sent the, the judges, during the days of the judges, 400 years that they would be in sin, find themselves in bondage. He would raise up a judge to deliver them. How in their history... That as they were turning to idol worship, how the Lord sent prophet after prophet to come to them. And they persecuted those prophets, killed them. Remember in chapter 13, in Jesus, when he first wept over Jerusalem, he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. So God wanted his people Israel to be fruitful to be a blessing to the other nations, a testimony of the goodness of God, his provision, and it would be a witness that the God of Israel was the true God. So what does the owner do? Three servants have been sent. They've been beaten, cast out, nothing given to the owner. So does he give up? No. We see that long-suffering and patient continues in verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard, killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, Certainly not. So in verse 13, when Jesus telling this parable says, They'll respect my son. It has the idea they'll reverence him, they'll honor him. They came to Jesus. By what authority 
Do you do these things? And who gave you this authority to do the things that you do? And Jesus in this parable is giving them the answer. Here's my authority. My father is the owner of the vineyard. I am the rightful heir to it. I'm the beloved son whom the father has sent. You've killed the prophets. You killed and beat those who came from God. And now I am here and eventually you're going to have me killed. I know what you guys are up to and what you are going to do. But well, what will the owner of the vine, you know, of the vineyard do in their rebellion that proved to be over and over again? They didn't want to hear the truth. These religious leaders more concerned about their status and their authority that they had than to submit to the true authority that came from above. They didn't want to humble themselves and open up their eyes spiritually that the Son of God is right there in their midst. They were more concerned about their religiousness than about their relationship with God. Some of you, perhaps you've experienced that in one way or another in that, that you grew up in a religious tradition, your parents, your grandparents, and they've been in it a long time. And all of a sudden you heard the gospel and you responded to the gospel. You started reading your Bible and you come and you tell your family that, or your, you know, whoever it is, and they flip their lid. What do you mean we need Jesus? What do you mean you read your Bible? You know, we have these religious traditions. We have the holy, you know, sacraments, and we've been baptized, and we've been confirmed in the church and all of this. Who are you to tell us that we need Jesus? We're good people. We're religious. And you show them that religion doesn't save anyone. It's Jesus that saves. I'll send my beloved son. So in this parable, Jesus says, what shall the owner of the vineyard do to the vine dressers? Well, they will be judged, and the vineyard given to another, speaking of the Gentiles, and they will say, you know, respond to religious leaders by saying, God forbid that this should ever happen. But then in verse 17, he looked at them. I wonder what that look was like. Probably very intense looking right at them. And he said to them, What then is this that is written, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls it will grind him to powder. From Psalm 118. Messianic psalm. Remember, Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem. They're crying out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's, you know, again from Psalm 118. That's why the religious leaders are saying, Tell your disciples to be quiet. If they're quiet, the very rocks are going to cry out. You didn't know the day of your visitation. And so attributing, you know, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to Jesus being the Messiah. And then also know this, Jesus says, you know that it's written also in Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Interesting. You know Peter's listening, right? Because Peter, a few weeks from now, is going to stand before these elders. And they're going to say, you guys quit preaching Jesus in Jerusalem. And you need to stop it. And Peter is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he's going to say that you guys have rejected the truth. You've rejected the one who has come, the Messiah. And he quotes Psalm 118, verse 22. He quotes this. That the one 
The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Then he goes on to say, nor is there any other name under heaven in which a man must be saved. It's the name of Jesus Christ. There's no other name under heaven in which you must be saved. Peter, later on in his life, when he wrote his first epistle, he's talking about the church. He's talking about a temple, a living temple, where living stones being placed together in his holy habitation, where a royal priesthood, where you know, a special treasure unto the Lord. But he also says to those who are disobedient, and he quotes this verse here again, that the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Then Jesus, in verse 18, he says, Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind in the powder. It seems like he's making a reference to Daniel chapter 2. So let's sum it up. Jesus is going to be that smiting stone. Daniel chapter 2, many of you know the chapter. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and Daniel comes and tells him the dream, the interpretation of the dream. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, you had a dream of this image made of different metals. The head's made of gold, that's you, Nebuchadnezzar. And then the, the chest and arms of silver, uh, you're going to be replaced by them. That's the Medo-Persian Empire. The belly of brass, that's uh, the Grecian Empire replacing the Medo-Persian Empire. And then the legs of iron speaks of the Roman Empire, which was ruling during this time. And then there's going to be the feet. It's going to be iron mingled with clay. And in those days, there's going to be a stone. Those kings, speaking of ten kings, that there's going to be a stone that all of a sudden not made, without, made with hands, that's going to come and strike that image, and that image is going to crumble, and it's going to turn to powder, and then that rock is going to grow and fill all the earth. You see, Jesus is going to be that smiting stone. And he's going to come, and he's going to establish his kingdom. And listen, he is going to judge sin. And I just want to say, if there's anyone here that you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, this world is not your hope. And there are more and more that we have around us, that we care about people, that are trusting in this world and thinking that they don't need to come to Jesus Christ. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to know the gospel. They reject the gospel. They want to live according to their own desires. And we need to be praying for them and to be truthful to them because Jesus is going to come and he's going to judge sin. He is going to be that smiting stone, and he's going to establish his kingdom. There is no other name. Listen, if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, there's no other name under heaven in which a man or a woman must be saved. It is Jesus who went to the cross for you because he loves you. And he died for your sins because all of us have sinned. That's why he came. Take care of the sin problem. And on that cross, he cried out, it is finished. And as he cried out, it is finished, he's saying, I've paid the price. I've done the work. And he was put into a grave, and he rose again, and he's alive. And you see, no one else did that for you. No other religious leader died for you or arose from the grave. They're all in their tombs. Only Jesus proved who he was, the Son of God, and died for you. And he says, I come to give you life and life abundantly. He wants to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask and think. It doesn't mean every day is going to be rainbows and lollipops. It means that his promises are true for you. 
and he loves you, and he is your salvation. You cannot trust in yourself. You can't save yourself. The world isn't going to bring you salvation. It isn't being good enough. There is a living God who created you and loves you and sent his son for you. Will you turn to him? But he is going to judge sin. And he will become that smiting stone. Now to others, he's a stumbling stone. Paul, when he was writing you know, to the Corinthian church, he said, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling stone, to the Greeks foolishness. Again, they were... The gospel was a stumbling stone to them because they thought they were religious enough. We come by faith alone. You cannot earn your way to heaven. You cannot earn salvation. Again, it is coming to him, recognizing your need to be forgiven. And as you do that, he's going to forgive you. He's going to come and dwell in your heart. You're going to be born again by the Spirit of God. And that he wants to do exciting things in your life because you were made for his good pleasures. You were created to believe in him, to worship him, to know him, and to serve him. And he will do more in your life than you ever do in your own energies and go in your own way. This world will hold you in bondage. But there are people out there that are stumbling to the gospel. I've had, I don't know how many people tell me, I'll take my chances. I'm sitting there going, take your chances? I'll go my own way. I'll do my own thing. I don't need Jesus. And the gospel becomes a stumbling stone. Thirdly, for most of us in this room, I know he's the chief cornerstone. And the cornerstone of that building was the main stone that you lined everything else up to, right? It was plumbed to that cornerstone. And you and I as believers, listen, I want to encourage you one more time. You line your life up with him. And know that his word is true. And know that he desires to use you. And everything that you say and your behavior and your conduct and your purity and your faith, you line it up with what the Lord has for you and what he declares to you. And know that his word is true. You see, here's the thing. Sin's going to hold you in bondage. It's just going to hold you in bondage. It's going to deceive you. The world's going to deceive you. And it's going to wipe you out and do you in. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Line your life up with him. And if there's anything you believer that's going on in your life that you know it's sin, it's a compromise, then go to the Lord. Go to him as we go to him in just a few minutes here. And confess it and say, Lord, help me get rid of this thing or this attitude or this compromise or whatever. Line yourself up with him because he is your foundation. And if you get off course and you're not lined up with him, it's going to be bad news. The whole structure would crumble if they don't line it up to the chief cornerstone. And the same thing will happen with you and me spiritually. It's for all of us and for this church. What authority do you have? I come from above. And I do nothing apart from my Father. And Jesus, in a few hours from now, is going to declare that I am the way, the truth, and the life. Do not believe the lie that Jesus said that I am a way. He is the way, singular. And there's a lot of voices out there. 
that will deceive you, a lot of voices out there that will trick you. You have the authority of the Word of God, the Word of God that is true, and it is all God-breathed. And that's why it's such a pleasure and such a benefit for us to be here to study it. You study it. You be a workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Be a workman. Study God's word. Have your devotions. Spend time with him. And allow him to just lead you as you line your life up with him, the chief cornerstone of your life. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time that we've had together and these words of Jesus and, Lord, that we have truth given to us. We don't want to buy into what so much of the church is saying that, well, some of the Bible's true or it's not absolute truth. It is absolute truth, all of it. And so, Lord, I thank you that we can come and read it and understand it and, Lord, apply it to our lives. Father, I pray you bless everyone here. And, Lord, that first of all, if there's anyone here that you've never come to Christ in your life, listen. Don't let him be the stumbling stone to you. But you come to Jesus. He loves you. And you ask for forgiveness. And the Bible says repent. That means change direction. Quit going the direction you're going. And believe on him. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Will you do that? Today is the day of salvation. And you can pray right where you are. That Jesus, I come to you and I ask that you would forgive me. And I know that you went to the cross for me specifically because you love me and you made a way. You said it is finished and I believe that. And I'm not going to question that. Forgive me of my sins. I believe you're alive. Be my personal Lord and Savior. And I want to know you and I want to walk with you. And I want to live for you all the days of my life. And I thank you for hearing my prayer. For being my personal Lord and Savior. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And listen, if you prayed that prayer, as Pastor John's up front here, I want you to come up and tell him the decision you made or just talk to me as you're leaving today. I'd be happy to minister to you. We want to encourage you and bless you in every way we can. But also, Lord, I just pray for us that are in this room that we would line ourselves up with the chief cornerstone. We're living stones being fitted together as a church, our families, individually, and that we would not compromise because we know that compromise is going to lead to difficulty and bondage and blindness and deception. That we would fear you over fearing men that we would love people enough to give them the truth in love, to be a testimony of what your word declares. So encourage us and help us in that. Lord, I pray you bless everyone here. As we go out of this place, fill us with your love. Guide us in every way as you are the chief cornerstone of our lives. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said, Amen.